This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Thank you all. I'm Deborah Rohde, Director of the Center on Ethics, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the fourth in our Arrow series on ethics and leadership this year. The series was named in honor of Kenneth Arrow, Stanford Professor of Economics Emeritus, Nobel Laureate, and member of the Center's Advisory Board. And in addition to briefly introducing our speaker, my role is simply to thank our co-sponsors for this event, the Environmental and Natural Resources Law and Policy Program, the Center for Poverty and Inequality, and the Buzz and Barbara McCoy Program on Ethics and Society. Thanks as well go to Noah Ronkin and Dina Evans of the Ethics Center for their invaluable assistance in arranging this event. The lecture will be followed by a question and answer period. Those of you who have questions, please line up behind the mics and keep your questions relatively brief, if you will. Also, please no photos or cell phones. And after the question and answer period, Professor Singer will be available in the lobby for book signing. As many of you know, Peter Singer became internationally well-known after the publication of Animal Liberation in 1975 that is widely regarded as the touchstone of the animal liberation movement. Some of his other books include Practical Ethics, The Expanding Circle, How Are We to Live, Rethinking Life and Death, One World Pushing Time Away, The President of Good and Evil, and most recently, The Way We Eat, Why Our Food Choices Matter with Jim Masson. He was educated at the University of Melbourne and University of Oxford, and has taught at the University of Oxford, La Trobe University, and Monash University. He was the founding president of the International Association of Bioethics, and with Helga Cuse, founding co-editor of the Journal of Bioethics. He is currently the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University, a position he's held since the late 90s, and the Laureate Professor in the Center for Applied Philosophy and Practical Ethics at the University of Melbourne. We're extremely grateful that he has made the time to join us for this lecture on all animals are equal, but in what sense? Thank you, and please welcome Peter Singer. Thank you very much, Deborah. Um, thanks to all of the sponsors of this lecture. And um, thank you all, of course, for, for coming out to hear it. Uh, I was asked to contribute on the issue of uh, how an ethical approach to animals should affect our food choices. So that's really what I want to focus on. And uh, I want to restate uh, the general position that I've held since uh, writing Animal Liberation and uh, suggest where some of the things that seem to me uh, clear are on, that, on those questions and some of the things that also seem to me to be not so clear, still, still open for discussion. Because um, I'm approaching this question as a philosopher, as someone thinking about the ethics of the issue, uh, not really 
as, um, if you like, an animal advocate. I, I consider myself to play both of those roles at, at different times and on different occasions. But I think in this setting, it's more appropriate for me to um, be more of the, the philosopher trying to look at the arguments and see where they go. Um, fortunately, for me anyway, there is a significant convergence between the two, um, so I don't really have to choose totally, but um, insofar as there's a greater emphasis being placed, uh, I want to say it's on trying to assess where the arguments are about the ethics of how we ought to treat animals. So I start with this title because um, uh, one of the things that I was claiming in Animal Liberation is that all animals are equal. That was the title of the first chapter of that book. And it's a title that, uh, uh, of a chapter anyway, of a view, that I certainly stand by, but it has been misunderstood uh, in some quarters. Um, I think some people have genuinely misunderstood what I was saying through perhaps you know, not reading so carefully. Others, I think, have deliberately um, misrepresented it in order to try and present uh, me and sometimes the animal movement more generally as taking a uh, less plausible, perhaps you might say more extreme, less plausible, less defensible position than uh, I and I think most people in the animal movement actually hold. So um, that's why my title is All Animals Are Equal, but with the subtitle we need to ask what we mean by that and what sense we understand that term. And I'll use that framing of the question as a way of looking at some of the important issues about what we ought to be doing uh, insofar as our food choices are concerned. Okay, so oh, now that's very interesting. If we uh, don't get past this screen, I'm not quite sure why we're, why we're stuck on that. Let me just see. Okay. All right, well, I can get back to that, but I don't know why I can't uh, move onwards. Sorry. Let's just try this again. Right, okay. Thank you. All right. Um, so what I want to do is um, start by talking about what is the traditional view about how people have looked at uh, the issues of ethics in animals um, and uh, then contrast that with some other uh, alternative views. Uh, so um, there, if you look back historically at the way that uh, philosophers and thinkers have looked, about animal, looked at animals, um, I would say the dominant view, it's certainly not the only view, but the dominant view historically has really been that animals just don't count in themselves. And that's whether you get it out of Aristotle, um, who has a, a hierarchical, a teleological view of the universe that um, uh, all of the less rational elements of the universe exist for the sake of the more rational, um, then uh, you get this, this, this view that, of course, uh, the plants exist for the sake of animals and uh, the beasts exist for the sake of, of man. And for that matter, Aristotle would have added the less rational humans, that is the barbarians, exist for the sake of the more rational humans, i.e. the Greeks, um, and that's why slavery is justified as well. So that's all part of, of Aristotle's um, picture. Um, when you get into the Christian era, 
um, you find uh, Aquinas uh, certainly takes over a lot of Aristotle, but um, you also find appeal to the scriptural references of uh, God's dominion. And um, uh, so then Kant actually, even as late as the end of the 18th century, takes a similar kind of view. We have no direct duties to animals, but his justification is not the theological one, but that they are not self-conscious, so they exist merely as a means to an end, and again, that end is man. So it's against that background, I think, that we need to understand the importance of uh, different kinds of views about, about animals, um, because that's clearly a background that would license us to do anything to animals that suited us, that furthered our interests, that we wanted to do. Now, um, it's relevant at this point for me to say, um, when we're talking about animals, um, I'm talking about conscious beings, that is, beings who have some kind of subjective awareness. The philosophical definition of consciousness is, is self-controversial to some extent, but we could look at it by saying there's something that you can say is that the animal is experiencing, there's some sense to say what is it like for that being to be in this situation, to be feeling that. So all of these terms, feeling, consciousness, sentience, you can, you can use, um, those are things that, uh, in which uh, it's, it's vital for my claim, at, at least many non-human animals uh, have. And if they didn't, if they were simply like rocks or indeed like plants, because I don't believe plants have consciousness and despite occasional sensational claims, none of them uh, have actually been able to be replicated under good scientific conditions. So I don't think that plants have consciousness. If animals were like plants in that sense, then the view that I just referred to, that um, they don't matter in themselves, I think would be defensible. And if you ask, well, how do we know that animals have consciousness, then these are some of the arguments. The anatomical and physiological similarities, the fact that they behave in ways similar to us in, in similar circumstances, so we can recognise the sort of pain behaviour of a dog if we burn the dog as uh, something like what would happen, what a child would do if, if, if a child experiences a burn. Plus the fact that we know that they are not sort of clever robots made by some toy manufacturer um, but that they are beings who have a common evolutionary background with us and therefore presumably the nervous systems and the brain has some parallels with ours um, and uh, it's plausible to have similar explanations for similar kinds of uh, behaviour in those conditions. So that's why I think anima, at least I say many animals are conscious um, but not all of them necessarily, so when I'm talking about animals here, I'm not necessarily talking about everything that zoologically is an animal. It certainly seems to me to be pretty much beyond doubt that mammals and birds uh, are conscious beings, can feel pain. Um, I think it's uh, overwhelmingly probable that all vertebrates can. Um, I think it's highly likely that at least some invertebrates can. You might have uh, read some things recently about how clever uh, an octopus is at, at learning and the kind of memory that they have and uh, it's at least plausible to assume that that's associated with consciousness and purposive behaviour and, and so on. 
Um, when you get down to crustacea, I think it's, there's a larger element of doubt, just because the, the parallels in terms of uh, anatomy and physiology are much more remote. The evolutionary divide between us and them goes back much further. Um, but it's still quite reasonable to believe that they feel pain. Uh, with insects, uh, again, I think perhaps there's uh, somewhat more doubt. And if you get down to clams and oysters, I think the balance of probability goes the other way. It seems unlikely to me, given what we know about their nervous systems, um, their anatomy, uh, plus the fact that they don't have much opportunity to respond to pain by moving away from it or something of that sort, uh, it seems to me unlikely that they're conscious, although certainly not um, certain that they're not. So that's roughly um, the, the spectrum of beings that I'm talking about and what I'm saying will apply, therefore, with uh, greater confidence to the vertebrates and somewhat less confidence to the other beings. Okay, now, there is a more modern um, alternative to what I call the traditional view, which is probably uh, today the one that is most widely held. I think the, what I call the traditional view, despite its enormous historical importance and the influence that it's had on many practices that have developed over the millennia um, with animals, I think probably most people, if you ask them if they think animals matter at all in themselves today, most people, not all, um, certainly in this society, would say, yes, they do matter. So it's not right to say they don't matter at all. They only matter sort of indirectly because of benefits for humans. They might say something like, well, look, we do have a duty to be kind to animals um, and, we, and to avoid being cruel to them. And we have laws that say you can't be cruel to animals um, and we do prosecute people uh, for breaking those laws. So that suggests that animal interests count to some degree. Um, so deliberate wanton cruelty is bad, but on the other hand, they're easily overridden by interests of ours. And among those interests of ours would be in consuming animal products um, and getting those animal products as cheaply and efficiently as we can. And there's a variety of other interests too, of course, using them for entertainment in zoos and circuses, uh, using them for research and experimentation, uh, and those, their interests can be overridden by all of our interests in this area. Now, um, I put a little note at the bottom of this slide just to raise a question even within this mainstream kindness and cruelty view, which is not a view that I'm going to defend, I'm going to say, suggest we ought to move beyond that view, and um, yet very few people think that um, eating beef or chicken ought to be prohibited. Now, um, so the question is, what is it about people's interest in entertainment on this view does not override the interests of uh, bulls or, or cocks or dogs in not being subjected to the pain and suffering of being made to fight with their uh, other members of their species, whereas um, our interest in eating particular kinds of food uh, does override the interests of animals in, in not suffering. So there's a lot more that could be said about that, you know, is the suffering the same, is the need greater, and so on. But let me just, for now, raise that as a query, and I think you'll become clearer by the time I finish why I think there, there is a, a problem and why the various justifications that might come to your mind for saying, ah, yes, but there is a 
justifiable reason why uh, we prohibit bullfighting but not, um, but not eating chicken, uh, whether in fact that, that justification does really hold up. Now, I want to mention one other view that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to defend here, um, but that some people have put forward. Um, there are some uh, philosophers who defend a social contract view of morality, a view that says um, morality arises from uh, this idea of reciprocity, that we get together as a community, as a society, as human beings, and uh, the cutoff line for who is directly a subject of morality, therefore, is beings who can reciprocate with us, beings who can, in some sense, be part of this implicit contract that says, uh, I'm going to respect your rights and you will respect my rights. And uh, if that would be true, if that were the right view of morality, then arguably that would show why animals are not part of morality, because they don't have the requisite sense of reciprocity. Um, but I think we ought to reject this as a view of morality in general. Um, it may have some specific, more limited roles that it can play within a larger moral framework that is not itself derived from contract. But I think we should reject it. One reason is it would also exclude the permanently intellectually disabled humans because they're just as incapable of participating in a contract as um, are non-human animals. Um, and yet we don't think that we can treat them in the way that we treat animals. Uh, we don't think we can subject them to painful experiments, for example, for our benefit. Um, the social contract view also has big difficulties in taking into account future generations because obviously, you know, what can they ever do for us? Um, uh, they, can't, uh, they can't reciprocate the benefits that we confer on them. And yet, um, you know, a lot of the debate about climate change is, a, is because we think it's wrong to harm future generations. It's true that climate change will adversely probably affect many of you in the audience, uh, you know, arguably all of us because it's happening now. Um, uh, but um, a large part of the cost of it is going to be borne on people who don't yet exist, and yet we, we don't think it's right to say, well, who cares about them? They don't matter. Um, we think they do matter, and that's another reason, I think, why this is an inadequate view of morality and should not be used to justify the exclusion of animals uh, any more than we would use it to justify the exclusion of the intellectually disabled or future generations. Okay, so let me come to what I do want to defend as an alternative to the other views that I've put forward. Um, and essentially, I want to object to what I call speciesism, which is a term that is deliberately intended to suggest an analogy with racism and sexism, although I'm not claiming, as you'll see, that the analogy is uh, a, a perfect one in every respect, but I do think there is a, a significant analogy. And the analogy essentially is that in all of these cases, we have a dominant group, a dominant group that says it's more important in some way than the outsiders, those outside that group, and uh, it doesn't have to give the same weight to the interests of, of the others. Now, um, that's particularly clear, I think, if you have uh, the parallels, particularly clear if you have uh, the most blatant kind of racism, that which says 
if a being is of another race, or more specifically, let's say, is of uh, uh, African descent, then we can enslave that being um, because it's okay that being's interests don't count as much as ours do and we can make use of that being essentially as a tool to further our interests. So it's, it's particularly that most extreme form of racism that I think has the closest parallel to the attitude we have to animals. So I think neither the fact that someone is of uh, one race or another, nor the fact that someone is male or female, nor the fact that a being is a member of the species Homo sapien or a member of a different be uh, species in itself carries moral weight that tells you how you should deal with those beings, how you should uh, interact with them. Um, so what I want to do is to argue that that's not uh, a correct moral boundary and therefore there's a sense in which these boundaries between sentient beings, being capable of feeling pain, should not be given uh, the moral weight that we do give them. And that's the sense in which I would want to say all animals are equal. All animals are equal in that they are conscious beings, therefore they have interests, uh, at least, for example, at a minimum, they have an interest in not being uh, made to feel pain, not, not experiencing pain, not having uh, sensations of pain or not suffering, whichever way you want to put that. Um, of course, they may have other interests as well. Uh, and um, we should not give less weight to uh, their interest in not feeling pain on the basis of the species to which they belong. So another way of putting this, this sense in which all animals are equal would be simply to say, uh, at the minimum, at the most basic level, pain is pain no matter what the being who experiences it. And the badness of pain does not depend on the race, sex or species of the being experiencing it, but depends only on the nature of the sensation of pain, how severe it is, how long it lasts, um, and other factors that you might relate to how much the being suffers from pain. And I'm not saying here that pain is the only thing that's important or that matters, but I'm using it as a kind of lowest common denominator, a shorthand for an, a, one very basic interest that we have um, in addition in many cases to others. So that's a sense in which I think you can say all animals are equal, not a factual sense. Again, I'm not claiming that they experience pain in the same way. There may be differences depending on levels of consciousness and levels in which you can reflect on your pain that may in some cases make your pain worse, in other cases may make your pain less bad. You know, there you are at the dentist, it's uncomfortable, the dentist drilling, but you can say, oh, he's, he's going to stop pretty soon, so I'll think of something else and it's not so bad. Um, maybe an animal being subjected to similar kind of pain as part of a, an experiment would not know that that was going was to stop and might be more terrified, more desperate because of it, not able to distance themselves from it in the way that you can. On the other hand, you might remember the painful experience more vividly or in a different way than an animal. And you might anticipate being subjected to pain in a way that typical non-human animals don't. So, so there are all sorts of differences, which I don't deny, um, in the, the nature of beings. Um, but uh, this is a moral sense of equality, a sense of the weight we should give to pain, which I would want to maintain um, is something where we should be giving 
equal weight to it. Okay, so that's the, 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 the moral sense of equality. Now, um, let me talk about the way in which this is uh, sometimes being distorted. Uh, you quite often read this quote from Ingrid Newkirk, um, the uh, co-founder and, and head of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Um, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Um, and sometimes the quote actually just stops there. Um, and this quote that I have at the beginning, she says, well, they're all animals. Um, even if you add they're all animals, um, uh, the quote seems to suggest that in every respect you treat them the same, in every respect they're just as important. That if you had to choose between saving a rat from a burning building and a boy, um, you would be just as justified in saving the rat as you would be in saving the boy, um, and, and so on. Um, so many people think, well, that's what the animal movement believes. Some of them think that that's what I believe because of my association with the idea that all animals are equal. Um, it's, it's not what I believe for reasons that I'll go on to explain. And I don't even think it's what Ingrid Newkirk believes because the full quote um, she has said is really this. When it comes to having a central nervous system and the ability to feel pain, hunger and thirst, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Now, when you look at that full quote, that seems to me to be something that's entirely defensible. That is, um, she's listing things that clearly are bad against the interests of beings um, to suffer pain, I've already talked about, to suffer hunger and thirst, a particular kinds of distress, and um, every reason to believe that rats and pigs and dogs suffer from hunger and thirst as humans do. Um, we, we could debate whether they suffer just as much and in what way and, and so on, but um, there's certainly some suffering and um, they're clearly morally significant. So um, that gets, I think, closer anyway to a defensible kind of view about what moral position we ought to have um, and not one that is uh, as extreme as, as might be suggested because Newkirk is not saying these are the only things that matter. Okay? She's mentioning these things, but she's not saying that's everything that matters about uh, humans or dogs or pigs or rats. And I wonder, I'll go on and say why I think that that's important to say these are, these are not the only things that matter, but they do matter. Okay. So what we've come to so far is I've defended in place of the traditional view and the kindness cruelty view and the social contract view, I've defended what I'm going to call the equal consideration view. That is that the principle is one of equal consideration of interests which requires us to give equal weight to similar beings irrespective of species. And I've argued for that by saying that the species boundary in itself does not mark a morally crucial boundary. Um, let me just say another way of thinking of that, if you're wondering wh why it doesn't, um, another way of thinking of that at the other end, rather than thinking about animals, is to think about um, imaginary beings who are like us but not members of our species. Um, so you think about your favourite alien from some uh, you know, movie or TV program or whatever it is, um, mine's uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Um, so if somebody were to say, well, you know, E.T. doesn't really count, I mean, we assume that he's real, um, E.T. doesn't really count, you know, would be interesting to cut him open and see what he's like inside and do some experiments on him. Um, 
and you say, no, that would be horrible, you know, E.T.'s a, a loving, kind, compassionate uh, being who's homesick and, you know, wants to go back and see his uh, family and all the rest of it and to cut him open for your scientific curiosity would be a terrible thing to do. And then the person says, well, wait a minute, I think you've forgotten that E.T. is not a member of our species, so that means that it's okay, doesn't it? Um, you would want to say no. Just the fact that E.T. is not a member of our species doesn't provide you with a justification for treating E.T. as if he didn't count, or even for treating him as if his interests were less significant than ours, or so I'd want to say. Okay, now let's look at some of the implications of this principle of equal consideration of interests for um, some of the things that we do. And I'm focusing, going to focus now on farm animals. Uh, I've got actually a, a couple of reasons for doing that. One is simply in terms of sheer numbers. For many years, the American animal movement actually focused on animals used in research. Um, and I think that that was a mistake in a variety of ways. Um, but one of the major reasons why it was a mistake is it was focusing on a very small proportion of the total suffering that humans inflict on animals, uh, or humans, let's say, Americans inflict on animals if we're talking about the American uh, animal movement. And this is one way of looking at it. Uh, the number of, of vertebrate animals, anyway, killed in research in the US is roughly the population of this state. The number of vertebrate animals killed annually in food production just in the United States is roughly one and a half times the population of the world. So you think about that as a contrast, the difference between the population of California and the population of the world, and you think, well, we want to reduce the amount of suffering we inflict on animals. Where, do we, where should we focus most of our energies? The answer surely is on that vastly greater quantity of suffering that occurs in food production. Um, another reason why I want to focus on food animals, of course, is that this is a series on, on food, so that makes it relevant for this. Uh, the third reason that's particularly important, I think, for today's talk is that we are here in California where in November you are going to vote on the most significant uh, question that has ever been put to voters in the United States relating to the welfare of animals. Um, and that is uh, the initiative on uh, uh, farmed animals which seeks to ban um, not, uh, seeks to ban some of the worst forms of, of factory farming, which I'm going to go on and, and show you. Um, and uh, should that be passed in California, it will obviously have enormous ripple effects for the rest of the, of the United States. Um, uh, in addition to what it does to reduce animal suffering in this state. So uh, it's another reason to, to put farmed animals here uh, right up front. Okay, so um, principle of equal consideration of interest applied to farm animals. What does it mean? Well, a lot of people don't actually know what it means because they don't really know very much about how their food is produced. Those of you who've attended other lectures in this series, um, Michael Pollins, for example, will probably know a bit more about it. And he acknowledges that, in fact, there is a lack of transparency in our food production. That most people simply don't know how the animals they eat are raised. Uh, he talks here the example of a broiler house producing chickens um, uh, and how they are processed. And he acknowledges that if people did know more about that, then uh, uh, some of them, perhaps many of them, would stop eating chicken and perhaps all meat. So I think it's important to say something uh, about that, to try and break through this uh, barrier of, of lack of transparency. And although I'm sure 
you in this audience are all much better educated than the average Americans, in, uh, and particularly in these things, I'm going to show you some of, of, of what it's like. So we've talked about the broiler house. So here is um, a photo of, of how chickens are raised. Um, you see this vast shed that is basically jammed with chickens um, so that they, they pretty much cover the floor of it. Uh, you might have uh, 20, 25,000 chickens in one of these sheds. Um, uh, they are not suited for that kind of existence. Although they have been bred um, for uh, being reared in these conditions, um, the main thing that they're bred for is very rapid growth, putting on weight extremely fast. So that uh, the, the chicken that uh, is sold today has basically been killed at the age of 42 days. Um, they're really babies, um, and yet they've got to this quite substantial size um, because that's what they've been bred for. Um, they still have, though, um, a lot of problems. Um, one is uh, adjusting to a flock size this large where they don't get to know other birds as chickens do in a normal sized flock. Um, and that's part of the problem here. There's also um, an incredible ammonia level in these sheds. If you walk into one of these sheds, that's the first things that perhaps that you notice, that your eyes start to sting from the ammonia. And that's because these birds are, of course, leaving their droppings on the floor in the, in the straw and litter. And it's not even cleaned out every 42 days. It's not cleaned out with every new crop that comes in. Uh, in many cases, it will be cleaned out every year. I've read of sheds that are even not even cleaned out every year. So there's a lot of ammonia from their droppings, and clearly that causes them, I think, both uh, eye and, uh, and lung problems. Also, because they grow so fast, some of them just collapse. Some of them uh, die of, of uh, basically heart attacks. Some of them, uh, their legs collapse because they put on so much weight that their immature leg bones don't support their weight. And if they, if they happen to collapse, you know, these, these lines down the shed uh, are the feeders where they get food and, and water out of pipes that are running down the shed. If they happen to collapse in the middle, um, their legs collapse where they can't reach the, the food and water, they're just going to die of, of, of thirst or, or hunger um, because nobody comes really to check them. Uh, people don't walk through this shed. Or they may occasionally walk through and pick up the carcasses, but there's no individual veterinary attention. They're just not worth it. There's too many of them. Um, and it's not worth the labor time uh, for anyone to go through and do that. Uh, so there's another shot from more the bird's eye level of the same kind of thing. You get a sense of, of how densely packed they are. Um, and uh, uh, this is my slide that I like to show before Thanksgiving, particularly turkey production is much, is much the same. Uh, again, a large broiler, uh, broiler unit. Um, with the additional novel feature that every one of these turkeys is the result of artificial insemination. Um, modern turkey has been bred to have such a large breast that uh, physically cannot mate, and uh, that's the only way to get more turkeys. Good conversation for your Thanksgiving table. <laughs> okay, if we move on to pigs, um, this is, is a, a sow stall, and this is one of the things which the California Initiative that I mentioned um, seeks to prohibit. Uh, the confinement of the breeding sows, these are the mothers of the pigs who are sold at market, although eventually, of course, they will themselves get, get sold, but not for pork chops because they're too old and tough. Um, so these are the mothers who basically spend their lives like this in a stall too narrow for them to turn around, lying on bare concrete, um, not given straw or anything like that to bed down on, um, and their life is simply that of a breeding machine. Um, 
they are uh, made pregnant, they uh, spend their time then in this stall, um, and uh, let me just show you another shot of the stall. Some of the stalls are actually slatted metal rather than concrete, but it doesn't make them any more comfortable. It's uh, a design that means you can wash the dung uh, through, um, and you can see they're so crowded, these ones, that they can't even get their legs into their own stall. Their legs stick into their, into their neighbor's stall. So they, they spend their pregnancy uh, like that, um, a uh, period, I think, of about three months, three and a half months, um, never being taken out of that stall. And when they're ready to give birth, um, they're typically put in another stall like this called a farrowing crate, um, where again they're more or less immobilized, and now from being a sort of a breeding machine, they're like a, a milking machine. They're, they're just lying there exposed with their, for their piglets to suckle on. Uh, the producers do this because occasionally a sow may crush a piglet if she moves around and lies on them. Not very often, obviously, they're pretty good at doing, not doing that, especially if you give them some straw to bed down in, but um, you know, straw costs money and costs labour to, to clean it out and throw it out, so it's, it's simpler to do it this way. So uh, again, they're extremely crowded in, in these conditions, uh, and, and these birds will spend really their entire laying lives, uh, which is uh, a year to 18 months. Um, in these cages and they'll only leave them in order to be killed. Uh, they get de-beaked, the laying hens, because otherwise in those crowded conditions they would be pecking each other um, and they would be uh, likely to kill each other, which is not good. Dead hens don't lay eggs. So um, uh, there's an operation that cuts off the, uh, the top of the beak of the hens, uh, which is clearly a painful operation. Uh, a beak is not like a fingernail. It's full of nerve endings so hens can... Uh, identify their food when they're out in a natural situation, separate the sort of what they can eat from what they can't, um, and it's clearly a painful operation to cut through those nerves on the on the young chick. Uh, by the end of the laying period in these cages, they very often have lost most of their feathers just from rubbing against each other and rubbing against the wire. Um, and here's an example of this. Um, this is an ex-battery hen at the end of lay, which would have been killed but was uh, obtained, I, I'm not quite sure how, by um, an animal organisation called Compassion Over Killing. Um, and you can see how uh, many feathers that, that bird has lost and how the skin is exposed and sometimes rubbed quite raw from the crowding of, of the cage. Uh, incidentally, if you do take an ex-battery hen that's never been on grass and never been able to walk around, even never really been able to stretch her wings, she starts to do all these things um, very rapidly, um, starts even to, there's an instinct still to dust bathe, for example, which is still there. Um, they soon start chasing insects, which they've never been able to do. And if you give them some straw or something like that to build a nest from, then before they lay an egg, they're going to build a nest, even though they've never had straw in their lives before. Now, this is the, the third and last of the um, forms of, of confinement of animals that would be prohibited if the uh, California Initiative passes. These are the notorious uh, veal crates which confine veal calves reared intensively for uh, pale, uh, so-called white veal production, uh, where the, the calves are immobilized essentially so that uh, they don't develop any tough muscle, they don't uh, exercise, um, they are fed simply on liquid uh, diet, milk replacer, they're not given any grass or straw because that contains iron and that would make the flesh a more um, pinkish, uh, pinkish reddish colour, uh, which doesn't get as high a price as the paler flesh of calves that have been reared exclusively on milk and essentially are anemic, essentially are kept 
uh, iron deprived in order to get that uh, top price for uh, their flesh. So not, not many people actually defend the, the white veal trade anymore, but it, but it still continues. Um, and it's the smallest in numbers of the three things that the California Initiative would prevent, with the uh, battery cages being by far the largest. And that's one of the reasons why the California Initiative is so significant, because Arizona passed a ban on uh, the sow stalls and the veal crates. Um, and Colorado is actually um, also, uh, the legislature is in the process of banning them, but no state has voted as yet on the battery cage. And, uh, and that's the biggest of them, and that will send a huge message if California votes against it. Okay, um, just briefly mention beef. Um, beef cattle do get more room. They're not as closely confined, um, but still it's highly intensive. Uh, these, this is the typical feedlot, beef feedlot, where the cattle spend the last six months of their lives. Um, and it's also extremely wasteful in terms of grain production and uh, now with a focus on greenhouse gases, as uh, uh, you would know and probably Michael Pollan talked about, it's um, extremely uh, high in greenhouse gas emissions and methane emissions from the cattle. So that's something which uh, has other objections clearly in addition to the animal welfare objections. Okay, whoops, sorry. I just want to mention, if you want to look at more of this, there is a, a video that people for the ethical treatment of animals put out called Meet Your Meat. If you Google that, you'll find it online, and uh, you can certainly get some more information by looking at that. Uh, whoops, wrong way. Okay, so having looked at factory farming, having said a bit about it, here's one argument that seems to me to follow clearly from the equal consideration of interests principle. Um, it's wrong to cause pain without a good enough reason, that is, for say, you could say, without um, a compensating greater interest that we're meeting or satisfying. Animals suffer in factory farms. We could nourish ourselves in other ways without factory farm production. Uh, our enjoyment of the way the meat tastes uh, is not a good enough reason to justify the amount of suffering that animals are made to endure, and therefore we should stop eating the products of factory farms. Um, indeed, I could add, you know, therefore we should prohibit keeping animals in this way. Um, uh, but for most people, of course, um, they don't have that choice, as, as you will be able to vote on that choice. Um, most people can only make the personal decision to say, I'm going to stop eating it. But that obviously is, is something that you can do, and that's something that is a way of contributing, a way of making an impact, at least together with others. You can get into a lot of debate about you know, what difference does one person make. But if you're part of a social movement that is boycotting this kind of production, obviously, if a large number of people do, then the demand for it is going to drop off. And if the demand for it drops off, there'll be fewer animals suffering in this way. So that seems to me to be something that clearly follows. I said I would talk about what I think is, is clear and, and what is more, more doubtful, what is more arguable. This, I think, is clearly follows. If, if you want to challenge it, by all means, you know, get to one of the microphones once we get to question time, um, and, and we'll be able to see what your objections are. But, but to me, this is, is something that is a, a clear implication of equal consideration of interest combined with the facts about the way we treat animals and the way they suffer, and the alternative foods that we have available to us. Now, um, I've said that we, I support the principle of equal consideration of interests. I've also briefly mentioned that that doesn't mean 
that all animals have the same interests. So now I want to say a bit more about that and a bit more about what the implications of that might be. These are cows um, uh, reared for, for beef, they're not dairy cows, um, but you could say that a lot of their interests are satisfied anyway by being on this farm, um, a limited number of acres in New Jersey. Um, obviously human beings generally are not, do not have their interests satisfied so easily. The interests of my students at Princeton um, nearby are not satisfied simply, uh, would not be satisfied simply by being in that sort of space, that sort of area. In fact, they wouldn't really even be satisfied by being confined to Princeton, idyllic place as it is. Um, many of them, for example, want to go and visit New York. So they have an interest in going to visit New York, whether it's to uh, go to the, uh, uh, the theater or, or the Met or, or, or whatever else it might be to, uh, to you know, um, just uh, hang out with, with friends there. Um, these cows have no interest in visiting New York. Um, so uh, that's, a, that's an example of, of different beings with, with different interests. And of course we have to take that into account in considering how we ought to treat animals. It would be ludicrous not to take account of the fact that they have different interests. And their ideas of species do come back in. You can say, well, typically cows have different interests from human beings, typically. Um, and as long as you put in that typically, I think that that's... Uh, a, a true claim, um, but I don't think it, it quite brings back speciesism because it's not exactly right for every member of the species, and that's something I'm going to talk about. But so let me look now at, at an argument about that seeks to justify meat consumption um, but not justify uh, the factory farming of the sort we talked about. This is from uh, Roger Scruton, a uh, British philosopher um, in, in an article called The Conscientious Carnivore um, in a book called Food for Thought. Um, and he's arguing that uh, the lives of animals are not equal in value to the lives of humans. And to cut short the life of an animal is not as tragic as to cut short the life of a human. Indeed, he would say it's not a tragic at all. And he says, for example, um, for a human to be cut short before your time in some way is a waste or even a tragedy. He thinks, for example, here of the idea that, well, you know, you know somebody who died young, um, you may say, well, what a tragedy, you know, all of the things that they wanted to do, all of the things that they were hoping to achieve, um, cut short, uh, all of that, you know, hard work and study, if you imagine it was, say, a, a student who was, uh, who was killed, um, all of that sort of now made vain and pointless, all the, the care and love that their parents uh, lavished on them, um, in a sense all of that is, is now a waste. Um, so there's the tragedy. So not so, Scruton says, for domestic cattle, for example. If they're killed at 30 months, um, it's not more tragic than having them killed at 60 months. Um, I'm not sure why he came up with 30 there, because the typical uh, beef steer in this country is actually killed at 14 months, um, but I suppose the argument um, would be the same there. Um, so what he wants to say then is uh, we shouldn't regard their deaths as in itself a reason for um, thinking that it's wrong to consume them. 
Um, sorry, let me just... Okay, so, so that's an argument that actually um, uh, le is an attempt to, to look at the view that um, we can draw distinctions in the value of life um, based on the nature of the being and the nature of the achievements. Now, I think that that, in, that is not an implausible position in itself, okay? So let me just say that. I, I don't agree with Scruton, but that's one of the positions that seems to me to have a lot going for it um, in terms of saying cognitive capacities, essentially, make a difference to how great a tragedy premature death is um, because of the kind of awarenesses that, uh, that different beings have. But it, it's a problem, I think, to, to defend this view um, without accepting something similar about human beings. So if you do want to accept this, I think you need to think about whether you can still accept something like this. This is a statement of uh, the idea of the equal value of all human life, which is something that most um, Americans anyway believe in, and this statement is from uh, an encyclical from John Paul II, um, uh, which puts it pretty, you know, pretty clear terms, but as I say, something that many people at least would say that they believe in. Whether they actually believe in it when it comes down to, to some cases uh, is more difficult. But they would say, you know, yes, every innocent human being is absolutely equal to all others as far as the right to life is concerned. There are no privileges or exceptions for anyone. makes no difference whether one is the master of the world or the poorest of the poor. Before the demands of morality, we're all absolutely equal. So that's um, a view which I think is difficult to unite with this view because it seems to suggest that um, this applies to all but only humans. And that's what I find problematic. It brings back that notion of species here. And here's an example. The infant is being born without a brain apart from the brain stem. So there is the, the, the brain stem, which means the infant is not brain dead. The infant is alive. Um, the brain stem is what's responsible for the things that we do without sort of having to think about it, like breathing, like the heart beating, and, and so on. Um, but the rest of the brain is simply absent. Sometimes the skull is kind of flattened, sometimes it's filled with fluid, but there's really no more brain. So um, in terms of achievements, or um, in terms of plans for the future, or awareness of your existence, um, the anencephalic infant has no possibility of any of that. Indeed, the anencephalic infant, uh, I would say is not even a conscious being in the terms that I suggested at least all vertebrate animals are. Um, so does that mean that the anencephalic infant um, uh, has the right to life? What we do, it's actually kind of a halfway house. Here's a photo of an anencephalic infant um, uh, with, uh, with her parents and if you go to that web address you can get more details of it. Now as you see this infant lived one month. Um, why did the infant live one month? Well, anencephalic infants need a lot of medical support generally, and um, typically they don't get it. Um, doctors don't treat anencephalic infants. They don't kill them because that would be illegal, but it's also, it's also unnecessary. If you simply don't give them life support, um, they're pretty, you know, invariably going, going to die. Um, and that's what happened to this one. Although this couple actually said that uh, they were Catholics and they do regard uh, sort of life as sacred. Um, but nevertheless, they agreed with a course of non-treatment. So I think that we are, in a way, trying to have the rhetoric of equal value of all life. It destroys their interests, their time-related interests, in ways that it doesn't 
for animals who do not have that kind of awareness. But the typically qualification is important here, both because some humans don't have this, and the anencephalic is one example, the most extreme example, I think, but not the only example. And secondly, because I think it's defensible that, to argue that some non-human animals do have it. I think there's evidence from observations of chimpanzees, for example, by Jane Goodall and many others, that chimpanzees do have some self-awareness and some ability to, to think over time. Maybe not as long a time horizon as we have, but some. And perhaps some other non-human animals do too, including quite possibly some of those animals who we typically eat, like pigs, for example. Who, you know, pigs are as intelligent as dogs by most uh, tests, so if you think that your dog has some self-awareness and some sense of time, uh, waits for you to come home, waits for it to be time to go for a walk or whatever, then you probably ought to think that pigs have similar capacities. Um, but, you know, that's something that it's hard to be sure of exactly where we would draw that line. So that's why it's not, a, it's not a division that is speciesist. It doesn't just run along the species boundary, but it does um, mean that some animals are up there with uh, or above some humans, even though most humans are above most non-human animals on, on this criterion. So what does that lead us to, to do? Well, here's what Scruton wants to conclude from his view. He talks about conscientious omnivorism, and it actually relates, you know, it's sim, I think he, he developed this view before uh, Pollen wrote his book, but, but Pollen would probably defend something uh, like this. Um, domestic animals depend on humans and wouldn't exist without them. Killing them painlessly is not in itself tragic. So eating them is justified when they're uh, properly looked after, when all duties of care are fulfilled, and when the demands of sympathy and piety, uh, uh, Scruton thinks it's actually impious, not respectful of animals' nature to treat them in uh, the ways that factory farms do, um, are respected. So, so that's a justification um, for eating some meat um, uh, produced in a certain way. And I think that um, uh, it was interesting that, that uh, just uh, today, actually, the New York Times uh, ran a leader on, on saying something rather like this. You might have noticed that um, uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals have offered a million dollars to anyone who within five years can produce commercially viable in vitro meat. In other words, you take uh, animal cells and you grow the cells in culture until you produce um, something that not only is, is, is a meat substitute, but is actually meat, um, is actually at the molecular level meat um, that has grown as, as muscle tissue or something like that. And um, Peter is, is hoping that that will replace animals and therefore greatly reduce animal suffering um, and is therefore trying to encourage it. So the Times ran a, uh, a leader on it uh, today uh, in which, you know, the first sentence is really interesting, I think, and it's suggestive of a shift in public opinion about factory farming in the last year or two. We're disgusted by the conventional meat industry in this country, which raises animals, especially chickens and pigs, in inhumane confinement systems that cause significant environmental damage. Uh, that's an important statement. But it then goes on to say that it doesn't really want to get rid of animal raising, doesn't really want to produce, you know, have all our meat reared in the lab, um, because um, uh, this is... Uh, 
has seemed as if it's the logical conclusion for a radical animal rights activist, better for animals not to, not to exist at all if there is a chance that they would suffer. And I haven't quoted the whole of the leader, but it goes on to say that, you know, but if we have a good relationship with animals, uh, then they get to exist as part of, of our rearing them for food, and that's okay. It's very much like Pollan's article. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Leaders, of course, are, are not signed. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Pollan wrote this, because he does uh, write for the Times. Um, so, you know, that's the question that I think is worth thinking about. Um, if, it's, if, if it's right, if we did find this acceptable, um, as I say, it would be a, a tiny proportion of American meat or American uh, animal product uh, production that was justified by it because uh, overwhelmingly it's factory farm production and even uh, if it's not, um, still every step that can be taken to make it more cost effective generally is taken. It's a small number of, of farms that you could really argue give animals a, a good life, a, a worthwhile existence, but it's not none, so it would be a way of defending um, continuing to eat meat or animal products if you're conscientious about where you get them from. You really make serious inquiries into how they were produced um, and you limit yourself to only eating those animals. So, so this is, um, I, I think, uh, as I say, a, a, a serious argument that, um, that needs to be considered and, and the question is um, what sort of objections do we have? So here's, for example, from the same farm where I showed you the the cattle, here's their egg production um, unit. And that's a pretty good life for hens, I think. Vastly different from the battery cages I showed you. Um, they're, they're out on grass. Um, in the night, they go into this shed on wheels, which can be moved around so the grass doesn't get um, you know, too used up by too intensive use. Um, they lay their eggs inside, and uh, then they're let out in the morning, and the, the eggs are collected. And uh, if somebody were to say to me, well, look, is it better for those hens that they don't exist at all? Um, I would have to say no, um, even though I know that these hens are not going to live out a natural lifespan. No commercial egg producer, not even one who treats them as well as this farm, can afford to let their hens die a natural death because hens really only lay at uh, a significant rate for about three years. In fact, as I said, the battery hens will be thrown out after a year or 18 months because their rate of lay is falling off. You can keep them for up to three years, but their rate of lay is dropping. But after that point, it drops even further. They'll lay a little bit, but no commercial farmer is going to keep feeding hens um, when they're not laying eggs. Um, so they are going to be killed prematurely. Um, they could easily live seven years. Some of them will live more than that if they were not killed, but they'll be killed at the latest three years. But is it better for a hen to have three years living like this than to have no years at all? I honestly can't say that it is. So uh, in that sense, um, it's hard to say that it would be wrong to eat eggs coming from this kind of unit. Um, but the supplies of these sorts of eggs are actually very scarce. So if somebody says these eggs are not from caged hens, it's not going to necessarily mean that they're like this at all. They might be from hens that are still confined indoors and quite crowded. Um, the genuinely free-range egg is, is a scarce commodity in this in this country. So, but, you know, I think that, that, that one, one could defend um, that method of, of production. Um, 
These are the questions then that I'm really, in a way, going to, to leave you with because I'm going to conclude now, so we do have some time for questions. So you have to ask, uh, it's in a way, it's, it's, it's the most difficult, I think, of the philosophical questions this topic raises. If creating more animals who will lead good lives is only possible if existing animals are killed, as, for example, in that hen unit, um, that they do get killed uh, at some point, does that justify killing the existing animals? And is that compatible with equal consideration of interests? And to which animals does it apply? Now, I think the strongest argument, and that's why I use the, the hen example, is that it applies to hens. Um, I think in terms of the, or, or chickens for that matter too, in terms of the animals that we use for food, whether for eggs or for meat, um, it would be most difficult to argue uh, about chickens that they are self-aware, that they have this sense of them, their own existence over time, and that killing them prematurely cuts off those, their views that they have of, of what they want to do in the future. As I say, I think um, it's more defensible to say that that's true of pigs or, or, or of cattle, although um, I'm not sure. So, uh, it, but it's more questionable, and you might want to say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, um, but that doubt would at least be smaller. I'm not saying it's non-existent. Um, we don't know enough about chickens' mental life, but it's smaller with with chickens. So um, I think you could say, yes, it is compatible with equal consideration of their interests if they will have good lives um, and uh, if the, the, the killing will be done uh, painlessly and so on. Now, very often that's still not the case. I mean, it may still be the case even with the farm that I showed you that at the end they just get bundled into a truck and taken off to a uh, commercial uh, slaughterers where they... Um, are not treated at all with, with any kind of consideration for their interests because the whole business of slaughter plants is to slaughter as, as quickly and effectively as possible and they have no commercial value. But it's possible that also that they are killed on farm in a, in a humane way. These are, these are questions that you need to consider. Um, and so in a way you could say, look, it just becomes very difficult to be a truly conscientious omnivore and you might well make the judgment rather than try and get into that, I think it's cleaner, simpler, swifter, and perhaps also significantly sets a better example of true respect for animals just to say, I'm not going to eat animals uh, or animal products at all. And I think that that's, you know, maybe that's the best decision to make in a society like this one where uh, generally there is so little respect for animals that it's always likely that once you start treating them commercially, you're going to start to... Um, uh, you know, take shortcuts which are not compatible with the principle of equal consideration of interests but are more or less dictated by the market circumstances in which you produce. So, um, you know, perhaps for very, those, those pragmatic reasons, um, the, the, the best implications of equal consideration for animals are not to eat animal products at all. But I do think that the, the conscientious omnivore is a position that is uh, anyway at a theoretical level defensible and even at a practical level, if you can be confident about uh, where you're getting your animal products from, and if, you're, um, uh, you, know, if, if you dismiss the argument about uh, simply trying to set an example that shows the maximum sort of respect for animals. So let me, uh, let me leave it at that point. Um, I think uh, I've gone long enough, and we will still have time for questions and discussions, which I'm sure you have. Thank you. I was wondering if you would argue that um, unborn human beings 
before their time of birth uh, fit your definition of uh, consciousness and ability to suffer and are therefore, we are therefore required to afford them the same protection that you think that we should provide animals, namely that we shouldn't allow people to terminate pregnancies. Uh, okay, so the question is, if, if unborn human beings are capable of suffering, um, should we give them the same protection that uh, we give to animals? Well, I think the same argument does apply. So firstly, you have to say, are they capable of feeling pain? Um, my reading of, of uh, that question is that they're not capable of feeling pain in the first trimester, but um, at some stage in the second trimester, they quite likely become capable of feeling pain. Um, uh, different people have given different answers to when that is. Um, uh, a British committee that looked at it said maybe 20 weeks. Um, others have said 24 weeks. So I think there would be an argument to say um, that some protection anyway could be given to fetuses uh, at that point, which of course is, is after the date when the overwhelming majority of abortions are carried out. So I don't think it's an argument for stopping um, uh, abortions when they're normally carried out. Um, is it an argument for stopping uh, abortions beyond that point? Um, I'd say not necessarily because the arguments about killing will still apply even if they can feel pain. That is, um, the argument that says they're not self-aware, so um, they're not suffering the same kind of loss by being killed. But of course, depending on the method of, of abortion used, they may suffer pain uh, through that process. So I think what it would, the implications would be, would be that if you are performing an abortion late in pregnancy, when it's uh, plausible to believe that the fetus can feel pain, you ought to take steps to um, prevent pain being inflicted on the fetus in carrying out that termination. Thanks, let's go across here. Um, thanks for the thoughtful discussion. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on giving consideration to an animal after its death. And um, what I mean specifically is um, I'm a vegetarian and I often go out um, to eat with others and they will order a meat dish and then not finish it. And I feel like the meat wasted is even worse, even if it was factory farm, than um, for me to eat it. Any thoughts? Um, well, uh, I mean, from the perspective of what the animal has suffered, I guess, it doesn't make any difference whether it's eaten or not eaten. Um, but you might say, uh, you know, if you're trying to make some sort of argument that, well, I have an interest in eating meat um, and that's important and somehow that outweighs the animal's interests that were sacrificed for me to eat it, and if I then don't even eat it, uh, you might say, yes, it's, it's worse for that reason. You've got, you've got the cost and you haven't got even the purported benefit, um, which you might argue would justify it. So that's true, and in fact, um, you know, there is an immense amount of waste in the entire food industry, and we could dramatically reduce the number of animals we're raising, um, and for that matter, also reduce the contribution to greenhouse gases they make, uh, if we were to cut out the waste in the food industry. Thanks. Good point. Thank you. Come back here. Hey, um, R.M. Hare uh, makes an economic argument that says that we ought to be uh, demi-vegetarians or conscientious omnivores um, by saying that uh, if we create a demand for cruelty-free meat, then it would end uh, animal suffering or uh, factory farming sooner. Um, your lecture today seems to suggest, at, uh, at least towards the end, that it might be preferable for us to be uh, uh, vegans or vegetarians. 
but um, is it really, it, it, clearly uh, demi-vegetarianism or conscientious om omnivorism is morally permissible, but is it morally preferable? Well, I mean, the argument would have to be that, that if you do that, you will encourage this form of production, which will take over and, and supplant um, intensive animal production or, or more broadly animal production that causes unjustifiable suffering to animals more effectively than if you simply avoid purchasing them. And um, I'm not sure that that's true. I think when Hare made that argument, um, which is going back you know, a couple of decades, I would think now, um, at that time, it was extremely difficult for anyone to, f to find, uh, if you like, you know, humanely produced meat, the kind of meat that the conscientious omnivore would, would look for. And perhaps Hare's point was, it needs a few people to buy this to create a market so that the products start to appear in the stores. Now, I think actually that that's happened um, to some degree. I mean, partly it's happened through the growth in organic food, um, which is not the same as humanely produced, but does provide some safeguards. I mean, uh, they won't be produced quite as intensively. Um, but also there are some attempts now to, to label meat in various ways. There's a humane standards, uh, various couple of labels that are starting to appear on products about them being produced in accordance with certain standards. Um, you have to look them up actually and check what they are. Some of them are bona fide, some of them are not. Um, Whole Foods is now introducing standards for um, uh, the humaneness of the animal products that it sells, although in the United States it's had trouble getting enough supply for them. Um, but it's not the lack of demand, it's, it's the lack of supply. So I, I don't think we're in a situation now where it's preferable to eat those products in order to create the market. I think if, if, if people want to switch from factory farming to more humanely produced animal products, they do have the opportunity to do so. Um, and the, the question really is what people are going to, what is going to make people switch away from factory farm products? Um, and, and if uh, having a great range of, of vegan alternatives is going to be uh, just as effective at getting them to switch away from it, then to me that's a preferable option. Okay. And I should say there's also the environmental factor I think that comes in there as well and the humanely produced animals are still going to produce greenhouse gases. Yep. Hi, my name's Ross. Thanks for coming here today. I had a question about, you talk about interests and I wanted to ask about that because the term seems very vague the way you're using it. For instance, I don't think we could decide what the interests of humans are if we were just talking around here. But when it applies to animals, it would seem like how would you across, say, a room full of people decide on what the interests of dogs are when three of them own dogs and think that they have, you know, more consciousness than another? Basically, how would you establish an objective uh, set of interests? I, I think you, you, you establish a set of interests for dogs by observing dogs carefully in a range of situations and trying to see in which situations uh, they appear uh, happy and content and flourish and in which situations they appear miserable and, and uh, don't thrive and, and do poorly. Um, and I think people who, who know dogs generally get a reasonable sense of what that is. So um, I think it's, it's always a matter of detailed observation of the the type of being you're talking about to see what actually satisfies their interest. Now it's true that at some level, you know, you, you can do that for certain basic interests. You can say, well, for dogs, they, they need to have an adequate diet. 
Um, they need to have some exercise. Uh, dogs are social animals, and I think they do better if they have company. Um, so there's a lot of things you can say like that. Um, at some point, it's going to get much more debatable, just as we'll get more debatable with humans. You know, what's in their interest? Again, we know the certain basic needs that we need to satisfy. Um, is it really in humans' interest um, to uh, be able to um, you know, live in large houses and uh, to have a lot of consumer gadgets uh, and so on? Well, uh, you can, we can do research on that, whether people actually end up happier when they live that way than when they live in, in different ways. And of course, with humans, we can ask them uh, for their responses. With non-human animals, we can only observe. Um, and so there's going to be uncertainties at some point. But I, I think what we have is like a core of basic interests where we can be reasonably confident, and then we have um, sort of branching out less confidence about a different range. Well, the problem is your methodology fails when you start dealing with conscious creatures. Because, I mean, the way that you're rating interests seems to be kind of behaviorist in the way you just see, basically, see how they react in certain situations. But when we talk about, you know, interests of a conscious animal, we might talk about intent or motivation. And you can't really gauge that sort of thing just by observation paradigms. Uh, well, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, uh, firstly, of course, I'm not a behaviorist. As I said, I think animals I are co conscious beings, right? But, but that's all that we've got to go by. I mean, we can only do it by um, observing behavior. Well, I guess not totally by observing behavior. We can do physiological observations. We can tell when animals are stressed by looking at their corticosteroid levels and, and things like that. Um, but basically, it's going to be behavior and, and a little bit of, of physiology and so on. Um, I, don't see, uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, that's just uh, the situation we're in. In a way, that's the situation we're in with humans too. Of course, they can tell us things, but that's also behavior. And uh, we don't know whether it's truthfully reflecting their inner feelings or not. And, and yet, we do it all the time. We, we observe whether they're happy or not. We observe whether our own children are happy or not, even before they can uh, verbally uh, express their happiness. So, you know, I think we're stuck with that. I don't think we can get beyond it. Thank you. Yep. Um, hi, Professor Singer. Often, rather than showing praise or admiration towards people with rigorous moral principles, vegans or, for another example, anonymous kidney donors, society tends to show them suspicion or even hostility instead. Why is this so? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's so because it makes people uncomfortable. Um, I mean, when you, the anonymous kidney donor is a good example because I, I'm starting to get to an age where it's doubtful if my kidney would do anyone a lot of good, but, um, um, you know, from the rest of you, you're not. Um, so, um, so I, th I think people want to lash out at, at those who sort of suggest to them that they should be doing something that they really don't want to do. And, and giving up meat is, is one of those things which is clearly even easier to do than donating a kidney. Professor Singer, how and when did you become a vegetarian, and how and when did you become a vegan? Okay. Um, I became a vegetarian uh, in 1971 uh, when I was a graduate student at the University of Oxford. Um, I became a vegetarian because I happened to um, meet someone who I had lunch with um, who uh, asked for and received a uh, a vegetarian dish. I think the only option at that stage in an Oxford college was a salad. Um, and, uh, and so I asked him why, and he basically said, well, you know, I don't think that we're entitled to treat animals the way that, uh, you know, that animal that turned into the meat on your plate was treated. 
and I hadn't really thought about it that way. You know, I mean, I'd known that there were vegetarians, but most of them either thought that it was good for their health, which I was skeptical about, or that uh, you know, they believed in reincarnation and they might come back as a cow or something like that, and <laughs> I didn't believe that. Um, and this was, in a way, a much more kind of um, you know, direct challenge, especially as I was a student doing ethics, and I thought I ought to be able to find an answer to this question. Um, and so I started thinking about it, I started reading what philosophers had written about it, and what, you know, most, one of the things I discovered was a lot of philosophers had ignored it. Some of the ones, I showed you three of them, who'd uh, said something about it, Aristotle, Aquinas and Kant, said things about it that just seemed to me obviously wrong. Um, and even more recent philosophers said things that seemed pretty lame and pretty inept uh, about it. Um, and so eventually the penny dropped and I thought, well, it's not a matter that I haven't yet found the justification. It's a matter that there isn't a justification for uh, what I was doing and what I was eating. How did I become a vegan? Well, that's been a much more slow process. And um, I have to say, I'm, you know, whether I'm entitled to call myself a vegan is, is still doubtful because um, I'm not really strict about it when, for example, I'm traveling and there aren't really options. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to go without something that will sustain me. So I, if something is going to have some dairy products in it or something like that, um, I'll still eat it. I would prefer not to. Um, but for me, it's not something that is like sort of, you know, keeping kosher where you have to be absolute about it. It's, it's an attempt to minimize your support for animal industries. So, um, you know, but that's happened over the years, I guess. I've, I've, I've gradually sort of come to realize that uh, dairy production involves a lot of suffering. A lot of people don't know, and I haven't talked about it today, that to continue, for the cows continue to give milk, you have to make them pregnant regularly, um, roughly yearly. Um, and you have to then take the calf away from them. And uh, so that causes suffering because the cows are mammals, there's a very strong bond between the cow and the calf. And also there's a question of what happens to the calf if, she's a, if, if, if he's a male calf, um, he's gonna go into uh, the meat trade, either the veal trade or the hamburger trade. Um, and so in a way you're supporting that. So when I realized that, I started um, you know, cutting out um, uh, the dairy products um, the eggs, you know, I still think that actually uh, if you get eggs from that place like that one that I showed you, um, I still don't really think there's anything wrong with eating those eggs. Um, but as I said, it's not often that you would, you would get them anyway unless you're prepared to go to a lot of trouble to get them and I'm not that. Okay, let's come here. So um, before I ask my question, just wanted to um, share that, so 97 read your book and just by sheer logic moved to vegetarianism 10 years ago because Thank of the you. book. Yeah. So I appreciate it. It was a terrific uh, uh, impact, the idea that just a logical argument could shift one's right, It's always great like to hear that. that logical argument actually moves people to change their behavior. <laughs> it's unusual, right? Um, so I still, like, I still like the flavor, right? And so question is, I've wondered for a long time, what happens in the case when um, you're an unintentionally in a, in a situation where it's too late, animal's dead, and something's in front of you. For example, as an illustration, you're at a restaurant, you ordered the uh, soup that was you thought vegetarian, you may have even asked, but you find out afterwards, chicken stock. So now you've got it in front of you, the animal's dead, nobody's getting hurt at this point, you know you like it. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, what's the answer? Um. Look, if it's, if, it's, if it's merely, you know, I, I've got after uh, whatever it is, 30, uh, 36, seven years of, of being a vegetarian, um, I've got to the point that I wouldn't really want to eat uh, a piece of chicken and I wouldn't really want to eat um, 
a soup that was so strongly flavoured with chicken stock that every spoonful reminded me um, that I was eating, you know, something that was made from a dead chicken. But if, if someone had just said, oh, you know, that soup was made with chicken stock, but I'd been eating it and, um, and uh, you know, it wasn't that strong, I hadn't noticed it or whatever, um, you know, I'm not going to throw out the soup because of that, because I just don't see the point um, in doing that. Um, you know, in a way it's just wasteful. So, so it's not the, the, the eating of the product as such. Um, it's the supporting of, um, of the, the industry. And, you know, in, I have a, a little section in, in the book that I did with Jim Mason um, about uh, freegans, about dumpster divers, you know. And, and so, so one of the freegans I talked to was actually a vegan um, who then started getting his food out of, out of dumpsters. And you would be amazed what perfectly good food gets thrown away. Um, so then he discovered that you know sometimes in the in the dumpsters there was um, uh, there were there were animal products of various kinds which were perfectly safe and fresh and more, more, you know well preserved, and he started saying to himself, well this is just going onto the tip, this is going into landfill. Um, is there any harm in eating in eating it? And I I would have to say really no there isn't. You know if if you want to eat it I don't know I don't as I say I don't think that I would want to eat it anymore. But I couldn't see anything ethically wrong with eating it if. You, if you did that, and, and if the, the alternative was it was going into landfill. Let's come down this side. So first of all, thank you for refocusing our attention on the uh, principle of equal consideration. Uh, pretty much, I think, as uh, Jeremy Bentham stated it back in 1789, uh, but which seems to have been lost on the latter-day utilitarians known as economists. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I also thank you for uh, giving us the possibility of understanding uh, speciesism, but my question is, why aren't you guilty of another charge, which would be that of sentientism? That is, why do you stop at uh, equal consideration of species? Why not consider, consider the uh, flourishing of any organism, uh, whether it's sentient or not? It seems to me you've started a a slide down a slope that might land you into the good treatment of plants as well as animals. Well, I, I, I don't think so, and I don't think so in a way for the sort of reasons that, uh, that Bentham put forward that, um, you know, really pain is something that we can see is wrong, and, in a, and if you say, how do we see that's wrong? Well, we can put ourselves in the position of the being who is experiencing pain, and we can say, if I were that rat or dog or pig, I wouldn't like to be in that situation. So um, in order to be able to put ourselves in the position of that other being, which I think is something fundamental to the ethical enterprise, there has to be some awareness so that there is something that corresponds to what it's like to be that being in that situation. Um, if I put myself in the position of a tree when it's getting chopped down, um, there's nothing that it's like to be that tree. The tree doesn't have any experiences of being chopped down. It might still be you know, a bad thing to chop down this ancient oak that is providing shelter and shade for lots of animals and appreciated by humans as well and uh, you know, storing carbon and, and all the rest of it. Uh, so there might be, you know, but there I, I would be, I guess, like uh, Kant or Aquinas or whatever, I would say, well, there are indirect reasons relating to the interests of sentient beings for protecting plants. But there's not the direct ethical reason because there's nothing that corresponds to being that tree in that situation. Okay. 
Let's move in. Uh, thanks, Takasin. Um, uh, in the beginning of your talk, you made a lot of appeals to uh, our moral intuition. Like, for example, you said that we shouldn't adopt a social contract view of morality because that would exclude people who are mentally handicapped, and we all know that they have rights. Well, you know, by the same token, you could say uh, we all know that it's, it's okay to eat animals, and therefore let's build our moral framework uh, to accommodate that. So I guess I'm just concerned by the fact that you seem to be like using appeals uh, to our commonly held beliefs about morality on the one hand, while at the same time trying to refute one of those commonly held beliefs. Okay. Um, well, I suppose that one of the, what you might be saying is, look, um, if I'm prepared to reject the intuition that says it's okay to eat animals, then the social contract theorist can reject the intuition that says we have obligations to the intellectually disabled and to future generations. And, and that's true, I guess. You know, the tough-minded contract theorist could reject those intuitions and could say, so this is a defensible position after all. I think, you know, one of the differences between my rejection of the intuition that it's okay to eat animals um, and my acceptance of the intuition that we do have obligations to future generations is that um, the idea that it's okay to eat in animals clearly furthers our interests. We, we, we do eat animals, we come from cultures that eat animals, most humans eat some animals anyway, even if fewer than, than we do. Um, so that's something that, that satisfies our interests and for that reason we should be suspicious of um, the idea that somehow this is a, a moral insight into some sort of moral truth. Um, the idea that we have obligations to future generations does not further our interests in any way. In fact, it, it restricts our pursuit of our own interests. So I would sort of tend to give that more weight for that reason. My question, I guess, picks up on your previous answer, which is um, most of your analysis uh, in the way that you presented uh, your topic um, is based on uh, a dichotomy that only looks back on our culture basically as an agrarian economy. And you talk about the farming culture as uh, taking animals into as if they were farmed taking plants and turning them into animals and um, and then applying the, the interests of pain into the animals. And I was wondering um, how you would apply that along a food chain. You have animals that are clearly suffering, experience fear, experience pain. I, I, I'd have to imagine being eaten alive by another animal has got to be an extremely unpleasant experience. Humans certainly get eaten in certain situations by bears, by sharks. Um, so even though that's the, the, the hunted food supply is a very small food supply, it's certainly participated in by people even in the United States. Um, and I, I, my feeling is, is that it's, it's a partial inconsistency, at least superficially, in um, this particular way you've presented it. Um, and my feeling there is, is that um, if you're looking at a naturalistic philosophy, um, I'd like to know how you feel about that. And okay, okay, second, I think, secondly, I've, I just had I think I've got the question. I, I, wait, wait, just before you answer, I, I just want to say I had an observation, which is I feel also rhetorically the way it was presented um, that there's, there's somewhat of a push of the, a human uh, feeling 
onto the animals, which I don't disagree with, but I think that when we look at those images, um, our feelings of sympathy are almost pushed onto the animals. I think we feel that we don't want to be imprisoned, we don't want to be, we don't want to suffer in the same way that those animals are suffering, and I think that enhances our, our sense of sympathy with your arguments. I think okay. that's a psychological shift that happens almost unconsciously. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you to stop now because we've got long lines on both mics and we don't have uh, But I would like an answer to the first question. Uh, yeah, okay, so the first question is, um, you know, what do I think about uh, prey and predator relationships? Um, I suppose one thing that I would say would be that if, you know, I were given the job of creating the universe, um, I wouldn't have created uh, um, carnivores that need to eat other animals. But I wasn't. And um, so, so, so that situation exists. And the question is, what, we, what, what can we or what ought we to do about it? Um, there's actually not much we, we can do about it. I think if we simply eliminate predators, we have uh, ecological problems with the, the prey population. We already have those to some extent with deer populations, say, in various parts of the United States. Um, and it gets complicated. You know, We could then control them by uh, methods of birth control, but uh, that's difficult to do. So I would rather say, look, you know, let's not really worry about this. Let's just accept that, yes, there is some suffering, but it's difficult to interfere with. There's other values, perhaps, in terms of uh, preservation of ecology and biodiversity and so on. And, and we should leave it and we should just worry about the suffering that we're causing um, in an undesirable way. I, I don't think there's any kind of lesson for us in terms of looking at what predators do because uh, we are clearly not in that sort of situation. We're omnivores, we have choices, uh, we're capable of reflecting on those choices. So it, it would be a bit silly to say that we should somehow take them as an example to follow. Um, but I think uh, uh, let's clean up our own act and, uh, and, and avoid the suffering that we inflict on animals. You know, maybe some future generations will then start to think about this, uh, the suffering that predators inflict on their prey and come to some conclusion about it. But um, you know, as far as I see it at, at this stage, just leaving it alone is, is the best of the various options. Yep. Thank you. Um, first, I'd like to say thank you very much. This has been a really excellent discussion, and I think it needs thank to you. kind of continue and move throughout the country. Um, but I would like to ask, uh, there's a, uh, information that's come to me uh, as a vegetarian that's really concerned me. And though I really uh, approve of spreading the ideal of, hey, let's try being vegetarian, um, I'm concerned about the fact that rainforests in Brazil and various parts of the world are being chopped down for production of soy as the demand for soy and soy-based products in increases worldwide. And what are some of the ways that we can um, both encourage vegetarianism and encourage ecological sustainability so that we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so we're not, you know, like, right. destroying meat production and then cutting down all the rainforest to yeah, but, grow but, all the soy. Yeah, but, but you have to ask yourself, where does most of the world's soy crop go? And the answer is it's not to make tofu for vegetarians. Um, it's, to feed, it's to feed animals, right? It goes, the, the great majority of the world's soy crop goes into animal feed. Um, and, and that's very inefficient because it, it takes, depending on the species, you know, between three and six times as much food value um, in plant food to produce uh, the equivalent food value in, in meat. So uh, if, in fact, we, we, people become vegetarian, there'll be less demand for soy and less need to cut down the rainforest. So that's part of it. But sure, you know, we should still be conscious about the ecological ramifications of our diet, and we should try and, and get um, 
uh, crops that are produced in ways that are ecologically sustainable. Um, that may mean buying organic. Um, uh, it may mean trying to source uh, soy, if you can, that's not coming from Brazil. Um, you know, those are all questions that it gets difficult sometimes to trace some of these products because we don't have country of origin labelling as yet, although it's something that has been legislated for but not implemented. So, you know, we should certainly be lobbying for more information on our food about where it comes from, and that's the ultimate answer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my question has to do with the ethics of uh, environmentalism, and my question is there's kind of like three, it seems like three paradigms in environmental uh, thought uh, present today, and one of them would be kind of like associated with the book The World Without Us, which is like this idea of the, of the world as like, or nature this, as this kind of divine other, and then there's another uh, conception like with, with like a kind of an anti-capitalist conception of environmentalism, where it becomes like the world is something not to be exploited, resources are not to be exploited, but instead are, is like the grounding of our actions. And then there's a third conception, like the Stern Report on Environmental Change, the British Report, which uh, seeks to both contain and capitalize off of environmental change. Which of these three paradigms, if any, do you find to be morally defensible? Um, well, I, of, of, of those choices, I would go for the third. I think the, um, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't accept the idea, you know, some people and, uh, that in some ways I'm sort of sympathetic to their goals do sort of think of nature as something spiritual that is other, that is... But, but I think we're a part of nature. I don't think you can actually draw that dichotomy between humans and nature. Um, and I think what we have to do is, is think about um, how we can best live in nature in a way that enables us to satisfy our interests and our needs while considering the needs of animals and also while preserving, in the case of the Stern Report, particularly obviously uh, the planet's climate in a way that is going to work for future generations and be sustainable in the long term. And that involves one of the crucial things is not discounting the future. It gets back to the future generations issue. Um, and that's what's really distinctive about the Stern Report and why his calculations of the costs of climate change are so different from those that some other economists have come out with. But I think he's right about that issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I read in one of your other works, and the name escapes me at the moment, but the conclusion that you came to was that um, you talked about, you discussed the argument of ethics versus self-interest, and the conclusion that I seem to draw from it was that it was in my self-interest to be ethical. And can you explain to me how it's in my self-interest to be a vegetarian and to not eat factory? Right, okay. So the book was called uh, How Are We To Live? Um, uh, so it was a general argument that I made there that... Um, that we want to find various kinds of meaning and fulfillment in our lives. Um, and we, we often get sort of distracted by the consumer societies and the idea that success in life means uh, earning the greatest possible amount of money uh, and acquiring the greatest amount, possible amount of goods. And my argument was, uh, you know, put very briefly, that um, that doesn't really bring satisfaction and fulfillment and that... Uh, living an ethical life is something that gives you more purpose and, and meaning and fulfillment in your life. And being a vegetarian would simply be part of that idea of, of living an ethical life. I mean, it may also have other self-interested benefits. It uh, may well mean that you're eating a healthier diet, for example, um, and that in that way you're going to be uh, living longer and uh, be more zestful and healthy uh, throughout a long life. Um, but, but generally the argument was rather... Uh, not that specific, but, but simply talking about finding the satisfaction of knowing that, if you like, your 
your beliefs and your practice are in harmony, drawing together, and that you're all living out your ethical principles. And uh, I've known many people who get a lot of uh, you know, satisfaction and find that, that that's, in a way, the best thing about thinking about ethics and living ethically is that they can, can look on their life with uh, some degree of, of self-satisfaction or self-esteem because they're knowing that they're doing the right thing in those areas. Um, hi, this is a little off topic, but you were talking about the interests of animals and their own feelings and what they want to do. Another bill that we have in California that keeps coming through is the spay-neuter law. So I just was curious what your thoughts are, like, um, you know, procreation as an interest, is that something that's valid? Excuse me. <clears throat> is that something that's valid? Or if we take away their sex hormones, they don't have that interest anymore. I'm just interested in your thoughts on that, if you have any. Uh, it's about, about animal neutering. You, you, yeah, you, um, mandatory spay neuter of cats and dogs. A lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's something. Well, I think it just it, it simply depends on what the options are. Um, I mean, other things being equal, you would not uh, uh, spay and neuter animals. But but if other things are not equal, um, and if uh, if if that is the only way to reduce uh, the population of animals, um, which and if not doing it means that there'll be many animals living miserable lives, um, then I think it's defensible. So, so it's going to really depend on that specific question of are there really options um, uh, other than doing this. I, I don't think that it's a sort of major violation of an animal's interests um, not to be able to reproduce, but it is some sort of violation. And the other thing that you could say is um, you know, where it actually removes the sex drive, which of course, you know, if, if we want to not have further children, um, you know, as a male say, I will have a vasectomy, I won't have a castration. Um, but, but because vasectomy is, is more difficult, expensive operation to perform, um, then that's not what we do to, to dogs, say. So, so that's another question as to, as to the way we do it, um, uh, which is not really concerned about their interests so much as about, um, as, as about our convenience in various ways. I really don't feel now that I want to eat meat um, anymore. So um, in that sense, uh, no. Um, but let me also add, you know, consistently with what I said about in response to the, the question about the chicken stock and, and so on, I wouldn't think it was a terrible thing. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I would hate it if somebody said, you know, oh, well, I'd been a vegetarian for three years and then, you know, the meat on the barbecue smelled so good, so I just had to grab that, uh, that uh, chop and, and eat it, and so I failed, so I might as well just go back to eating meat. I mean, that's completely the wrong view, right? Um, because what you're trying to do, as I say, is minimize your support for industries that exploit animals. Um, and if you once eat this lamb chop, that's not a terrible thing. Um, uh, you should just go back and say, okay, so we begin from today. I still want to minimize my contribution, so I'm... Um, going to be a vegetarian, uh, except, you know, maybe every now and again um, I'm going to succumb to the, the smell of the barbecue, whatever it might be. Thank you. I've been succumbed many times. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, you know, you don't want to go too far. It's like the, uh, it's like, it's like the joke about uh, giving up smoking. I do it every day. Uh, <laughs> right. Hi. Good evening. Thank you very much for your wonderful presentation. Um, I've been a vegetarian and then a strict vegan and a little less strict vegan for the past 30 years. And um, 
I try not, I try to lead by example. I try not to preach to people. Of course, most of my friends and, fa and family um, are omnivores and carnivores and they get very uncomfortable uh, just by my presence and feel that I'm judging them. I try not to. Um, if they're truly interested about why I became a vegetarian, I did read a book 30 years ago and about the ethics, exactly what you're talking about tonight, about the factory farming. It, you know, it was in written form a long time ago, as you know. And so I, um, I guess I've heard every argument for people that want to hold on to their lifestyle and not give things up and not feel that they're deprived. And I have a difficult time answering people sometimes when they say things like, I have to eat meat, I was craving it, I'm not healthy without it, I don't feel well. I mean, personally, other than having, being borderline anemic, um, I'm extremely healthy, and I think, um, you know, there's really not a good health reason for being an omnivore or a carnivore, but, you know, when I get questions like that from people uh, or defenses of their lifestyle, um, and I don't wanna shame them you know, individually by talking about the ethics because nobody wants to really hear that uh, at, a, at a meal. Uh, what do you say to people? And I mean, obviously in a forum like this, people came by choice, they can leave if they want to, you know? Right. Well, I mean, you know, to some extent I'm, I'm you know, when I'm not sort of uh, lecturing or talking on it, I'm, I'm like you, I will, um, you know, I won't eat it, and, 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 and that's a powerful reason. As I said, you know, somebody asked me, when did I become a vegetarian? Well, that was when this person, you know, he also was not preaching to me, he was just choosing the salad plate, and so I asked him why. So if I'm in that situation, I'll explain it when I'm asked. And if people want more um, information, you know, well, I'm, I'll give them a copy of Animal Liberation or something like that. Um, yeah, so um, I think that that's, um, you know, it is best to, to approach people in that, you know, not too sort of self-righteous, holier-than-thou sort of way. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think you can do fine on this diet, but I'm not 100% sure that that is universally true. I've had a couple of people tell me, you know, apparently quite sincerely that they became vegetarians or vegans for some time and really didn't feel well with it and uh, only felt well when they went back to eating meat. I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of inclination to believe that there may be different metabolisms and that there may be a small number of people who don't do well on a vegan diet anyway. I think vegetarian is probably different, but I'm not sure. But so I would say to them, okay, then, then be the really conscientious omnivore, you know. Eat your meat occasionally, um, but make sure you really get it from a place that is uh, treating animals well and is sustainable. And, and if they're genuine in wanting to do the right thing, but, you know, do feel that they're actually not well, then they're going to do that. And, and that's going to have a, a good impact, even if not an ideal one. Thank you. We need to close? Uh, shall I take one more of each? Uh, one. Okay, we'll take one quick question from each of the mics left. I'm, I'm sorry about the others, we won't get to you. Yep. Hi, thank you for your uh, insightful lecture, Professor Singer. I just wanted to know, um, couldn't people decide that animals do deserve more consideration and then simply decide to do the immoral thing by killing them and making them suffer? And is there an argument to prevent uh, the vast majority of human beings from doing this? Well, of course it's possible for people to, to agree that uh, something is morally wrong and then to continue to do it. Um, I think that, that happens all the time. Um, it's, it's, it's less likely to happen if you have a culture that is starting to be concerned about these issues and, and respect them. And I think 
you know, if you, you're really asking a kind of psychological question about how do you get social change happening and how do you get people to actually do what they acknowledge to be the right thing. And I mean, that's, that's a big question, but, but part of it is by uh, developing a culture that's supportive of that. And if you look at, say, smoking, um, that's clearly something that people have changed um, when they recognised not only that it was bad for themselves, but when it started to become something that, that socially was less acceptable or less acceptable to do in public. So I think we need to get that sort of uh, critical mass going and the change will become easier. Last question. Professor Singer, thanks so much for tonight's dialogue and indeed for your whole body of work. As a vegetarian who's quite willing to entertain karmic theory in this life and perhaps into others, I also think that uh, the Rawlsian theory of justice can be extended to non-humans. What do you believe are the limits on that extension? Well, um, you could. I mean, there's a book by um, a guy called Mark Rowlands which, which actually does extend contract theory to animals. Um, I think it's possible to do. Um, it's possible to say, you know, if, if, if Rawls says, well, to be part of the contract, you have to imagine yourself behind this veil of ignorance, whether you don't, where you don't know whether you're male or female, white or black, rich or poor, and so on, then why not say, well, you don't know whether you're a human being or a cow? Um, and if you did that, then certainly we would develop a very different set of moral principles for animals. So it's possible to do that. Um, whether you're really, you know, achieving anything particularly by making it a contract sort of theory at that point, or whether you're really just saying, so my moral theory says you should put yourself in the position of all of those affected by your actions, which is more or less what I do without going through the extra rigmarole of the contract, um, I don't know that it makes any difference at that point. I would suggest that if one could entertain the idea of reincarnation, it's easier to entertain that social contract as well. Well, maybe, but that's a big if, at least for me. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for those of you who stayed and for all of your questions. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.